Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
That's where we're starting this morning. We are working our way through the book of Romans verse by verse. And we are now in Romans chapter 11, getting into the most controversial section perhaps of the book of Romans. We are starting at what then, verse 7 of chapter 11. What then? That which Israel is seeking for, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not, and ears to hear, not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is the riches of the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And last week I read you many, many Old Testament passages that talked about their fulfillment and what their fulfillment looked like. And the chief thing I hope you took away from that, because I told you all you'd have to retain this information for a whole week, well, now it's going to come into play, so I hope you held on to it. The one thing that you saw consistently was the promise of God saying that he was going to regather Israel from all the places where he had scattered them. So the scattering of the northern tribes, the house of Israel, the scattering was done by God because they had gone into apostasy, because they had chased their foreign gods, because they didn't follow after his law. For all those reasons, he had scattered them out among the Gentile nations. But every prophet in the Old Testament across the board speaks with one voice in saying that God is not going to leave them in that scattered condition, but he is one day going to go find them and bring them back again and reestablish them. We're going to look at yet another passage this morning that says that very same thing. Now, as we read through Romans 11, I think the reason that people get confused about the language, because Paul is about to draw an analogy and he's going to use a wild olive tree versus a natural olive tree in order to draw the analogy. The place where people get confused is that they just don't know their Old Testament, which is why we've been taking so much time to look at the background that Paul has. Remember that Paul is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Remember that he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Remember that he is of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that he's thoroughly enmeshed in the history of Judaism. And the reason that we don't always understand when he creates these analogies is because we are not thoroughly enmeshed in the history of Judaism. And so that's why we've been taking all this time to show you the history that lays behind the things that Paul has written. So what we're going to do this morning is start by looking at Paul's 
analogy. And then we're going to look at the Old Testament, I think, parallel analogy. We're going to look at Ezekiel's dry bones this morning. A story that we all know. Everybody knows it. You've grown up with it. The knee bone's connected to the hip bone. We even write songs about it. Everybody knows it. And so many times I have heard it preached on and preached on incorrectly. And the only reason I say incorrectly is because Ezekiel 37 actually includes the interpretation of Ezekiel 37. And the interpretation comes from God. You don't get a better source than that. And so if you're just agreeing with God about what he says about the analogy he's laid out, then you're getting your theology accurate. If you say something other than what God himself has said about his own analogy, then you're, what's that word? Wrong. Wrong. Then you're you're just wrong. So we're going to look at Paul's analogy. We're going to look at Ezekiel's analogy. We're going to try to make some real headway here in Romans 11. I'm hoping that we get to the end of it. We may, we may not. But along the way, I hope to answer Leon's question from several weeks ago that even Leon doesn't remember he asked. (laughs) I remember. Yeah, and when I answer it, you'll go, oh, that's right. I did ask that. So let's start reading then at chapter 11, verse 12. Paul is saying that there is a return, a fulfillment yet to come for Israel. Now, if their transgression is the riches for the world, the Gentiles, the ethnos, the other nations other than Israel. So if Israel has stumbled, remember last week we talked about the Greek word behind this word uh, transgression, it's peripatoma. And it's a word that can also mean to misstep, to stumble. So he's making a little play on words here where he's asking, did they stumble in such a way that they've utterly fallen? His answer is, well, no, of course not. Don't think that. Don't even begin to pretend that. Why would you construct a theology that says that? Okay, he didn't say all that. He said, may it never be. So don't even think that. So they stumbled, yes, but not for a permanent fall But because of their parapatoma, because of their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Hold on to that thought for a minute because then Paul is going to refer to that jealousy that he's trying to bring into Israel. If their transgression turns out to be the riches for the Gentiles, for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will be their fulfillment? Paul expects a fulfillment. Paul is saying the same thing that every Old Testament prophet has said, which is that there is a fulfillment yet to be had. Verse 13, he says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles through Romans 9, 10, and 11. I've been emphasizing that he keeps saying that he's speaking to the Jewish audience there at Rome. The church at Rome was both Jews and Gentiles. They didn't even meet in the same place, but this letter is written to both ethnic groups, both churches. Now he says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Even though I've been speaking to the Jewish audience up until now, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles 
Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, that is exactly his calling. He was separated out by Christ to take the message to the Gentiles, to the nations. The same way that Peter, John, and James were sent to the circumcision, he was sent to the uncircumcised. But look at what he says about his ministry to the Gentiles. Why was he so adamant, so tireless? Why did he go through the amount of beatings and shipwrecks and jailings? Why would he go through all that for the sake of the Gentiles? He's going to say, I did that to make my brethren jealous, to make Israel jealous. I'm expanding my own ministry, he says. I'm expanding it for the purpose of not just staying among the Gentiles. I'm trying to convert Gentiles because the more Gentiles I convert the more likely that the Israelites will become jealous. And that's my end purpose. So what was the sort of theme last week after we looked at all these passages? The theme last week, which I, I hate to keep mentioning Leon, but he got it exactly right. He said, it's not about us. And even Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is ultimately not about us. It's astounding grace. It's remarkable that God would send somebody to tell us about Israel's Savior and then open the path so that we Gentiles could also have salvation through Israel's Messiah. But never forget that he is Israel's Messiah. Never forget that the covenants, the promises, the testimonies all belong to Israel. Never forget that the blessings that came to us came through Israel. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That is a word for I expand my ministry. How does he do that? How does he magnify his ministry? If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So do you understand Paul's argument here? He's saying, yes, I am an apostle to you Gentiles. But I'm not just preaching to you for your sake. I'm preaching to you in the way that I'm expanding my ministry so that through bringing the gospel to you, I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen who are Israelites, who are Jews, so that I'm saving some of them. His ministry is not just limited to Gentiles. He expanded it. He expanded its purpose. He expanded the end result that he was shooting for, which was the salvation of Israel. Which is why he says over and over again things like, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? That was the beginning of chapter 11. Chapter 10 began with, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is their salvation. This is his motivation. This is his purpose for why he's doing what he's doing. So then we all have to agree this ultimately isn't about us. It's about the glory of God, which is how he's going to finish this chapter. With a doxology that goes on about the grandeur of a God who would come up with a plan like this, which we've been calling the master plan. Then he says again, starting at verse 15, for if their rejection 
is the reconciliation of the world, of the Gentiles, what will their acceptance be? The opposite of their rejection. God has put them off. God has scattered them. God has turned his attention toward the Gentiles. But then there is an acceptance that Paul is expecting. Why is Paul expecting this return, this reestablishment of Israel? Why is he expecting it? Because he knows his Old Testament. And we kept reading verse after verse after verse last week. That says that very thing, that God is going to reestablish Israel because he's gathered them in. Are you all really tired of hearing me say Israel yet? No. Because no. we've been saying this for weeks and weeks now. If the rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He even uses resurrection language. It's the same thing that Isaiah talks about, a nation Born in a day. Automatic rebirth of an entire nation. Who's ever heard such a thing? Isaiah, we looked at it last week, said things like, Who has believed our report? God has revealed his plan. God has told us what his plan is. His plan is laid out in what we call the Old Testament, which are the Jewish scriptures. He has laid out his plan for Israel and what he's doing for Israel. And then the church comes along and the church starts saying, well, it's about us now. And uh, we are the know-all and the end-all of God's plan. And so, therefore, now that God got to me, he pretty much accomplished what he set out to do. (laughs) Paul is going to say in a few minutes, don't be bragging against the natural branches. Don't start boasting. Don't start thinking it's all about you. It's it's just not. Starting at verse 16, then it says, If the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. Do me a favor, if you would, Tom. Go back to Numbers 15, and I'm going to have you start reading from verse 18. It's talking about first fruit offerings. One of the requirements of the first fruit offering was that when you made a lump of dough, you had to make cakes of a piece of it and bring those cakes to the priests as a first fruit offering. The idea being that if you brought your first fruits to God, the first fruit of all your increase, the first fruit of your grain, the first fruit of your wine, if you brought the first fruit of everything to God, he would then bless the remainder that was yours. And so Paul, again, thoroughgoing Jew, knows that principle. And so he says, if the first piece of the dough is holy, separated, separated to God, then the whole lump is also holy. By the way, that's basically true. If you break off a piece of sourdough bread, you got some dough there for sourdough bread, right? And you break a little piece off and you bake it and it turns out to be sourdough bread. Guess what the rest of the lump is? Sourdough. It's sourdough. You know that going in. If one piece of the lump is already identified, you know the whole lump is like that. So if the first part is holy, if the first part is separated to God, if the first part is righteous, then the whole of it is. Here, Tom's going to stand up and read for us. Numbers 15, start at verse 18. I think you're going to read the next three verses. Okay. This is the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel 
and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. So there's that idea, first fruits, the first of your dough. When you have dough, you take the first part and you give it to God. You sanctify it. You make it separate. You make it holy. It belongs to God. Okay, so now Paul has, in the midst of talking about the restoration of Israel, has brought up the idea that the first piece of dough is holy, so so is the whole lump of it. What is he talking about there? Well, we've already seen him say that within Israel there was a remnant. He argues that God has not utterly cast off Israel, and then says, because look at me. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has introduced me to Christ. God has saved me, and so if he has saved me, we can't say he's utterly cast off Israel. Then he goes on and tells the story of Elijah and how Elijah was running from Ahab, and Jezebel and how he pleaded with God and said, I'm the only one and they seek my life. And then God's answer to him was, I've kept to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so then Paul says, and it's the same deal now. Same thing today. There is also a remnant within Israel just like there was back then. The rest are blinded. He uses the word partially hardened. The other group has been hardened for God's own purposes. God is making them jealous through the salvation of Gentiles. But within Israel, there is a first fruits. And so if that first fruit is holy, what does that say about the whole lump? You get the picture? You get why he's drawing that analogy? Well, then he puts it another way. He says, if the root is holy then the branches are too. Because if the root of the tree is, let's say, oak, if the root is oak, what kind of tree are you going to grow? Oak. You're going to grow an oak tree. So if the root is holy, then the whole tree that grows from that root is going to be holy. And then the branches are going to be holy. So again, he is drawing an analogy to say that somehow the root of this whole argument, the root of this whole discussion is holiness that has separated Israel. In what way is he saying that? Well, now he's going to expand on his analogy. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive are grafted in among them, and become partaker of the rich root of the olive tree, let me start by telling you that horticulturally, that's all backwards. If you have a good tree, if you've got good olives growing, you don't get a wild olive branch and graft it in. You don't cut off good branches just in order to put in bad branches. But that's what God did. Now, you can take good branches off a good tree, and graft them into a bad tree, a tree that's not bearing fruit. And the result is that the bad tree will get better. 
But Paul has turned that on its head and said, what God has done is that he has broken off some of the natural branches so that he can graft in wild olive branches. Now, what we're going to see in a moment is wild olive branches is how we're describing Kellen. Just wild. The word is sometimes translated uncultured. Do I need to say more? Uncultured, untaken care of wild olive branches. So Gentiles have been attached to the root that belongs to Israel. Okay, that's what we know so far, that some branches were broken off. You, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you have become partaker with them, with Israel. You became partaker with Israel of the rich root of that olive tree. So do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you that supports the root. It's the root that supports you. Okay, so what is this root? This is really important to figure out then. What what is the root? Now, Paul, when he writes this, does not explain it to us. He just creates the analogy and keeps going. I assume that the reason he did that is because the solution, the answer, the understanding of it must have been so obvious to the first century audience that's reading it, that he didn't need to explain it. And any thoroughgoing Jewish audience, and even the Gentiles in the first century, are very familiar with the history of what has happened to Israel. We're just not as familiar with it. We haven't lived it. We're 2,000 years separated from it. The way to understand it, I think, is in Ezekiel 37. So let's go back and read Ezekiel 37. Keep your finger there in the book of Romans. We're going to be back there eventually. We're actually going to go pretty quickly through this whole chapter because, as I said, God spells out his own theology, his own interpretation of what this story means. You know the first part of the story. You know that Ezekiel was taken to a valley of dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of dry bones. He caused me to pass among them and round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And lo, they were very dry. The fact that they were very dry means that they had been dead for a long time. He said to me, son of man, Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. What a good answer. What a dandy answer. God, good question. Uh, I'm guessing you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life, and I will put sinews on you, and I will make flesh grow back on you. I will cover you with skin and put breath in you so that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. That is the language of resurrection. I'm going to raise up dry bones. I'm going to put skin on them. I'm going to put breath in them. They're going to come alive again. 
So, verse 7, so I prophesied, I preached as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they too may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet, and they were an exceedingly great army. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that preached. As when you get up in the pulpit and you preach, that's what it's like. It's like preaching to a bunch of dry bones. But we're told to preach what God says to preach. So you preach the word of God. And then if you preach the word of God, then breath and the spirit is going to come into people. And they're going to be revived. And they're going to come alive again. And that's what this text means. How many of you have heard that? How many of you hate it when I ask you to raise your hands? (laughs) I know. I know. Okay, so now God is going to tell you what it means. This is the part that I'm afraid too many preachers skip. Because the chapter's not over there. Verse 11, And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. There's the proper interpretation. Okay, so let's think about that phrase, whole house of Israel. That's going to help us understand when we get to all Israel will be saved in chapter 11 of Romans. What is the whole house of Israel? Does it mean every single individual who ever lived in Israel? Does it mean that? No. No. How do we know? Because there are certain people, like the band of Korah, there are certain people in the Old Testament who, were, who we actually see are condemned by God. So, okay, now we're stuck again. It means Not every individual. Well, then how can it be the whole house of Israel? I'll answer my own question. It has to be all tribes. There are ten northern tribes that became collectively the house of Israel. And if you have all ten tribes, you have the whole house of Israel. If you have nine of the ten tribes, you don't have the whole house of Israel. Do you understand me? Yes. These bones... These dead here are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. What did Paul just tell us? The natural branches were cut off. Okay, same idea. How has the house of Israel been cut off? They've been cut off from their heritage. They've been cut off from Jerusalem, which has cut them off from worship at Jerusalem. They've been scattered among the Gentiles. Many of them have lost their sense of who they are or their heritage. Don't look for the house of Israel to be walking around wearing yarmulkes and ringlets. They're not Jews. They're Israelites. And they are lost among the Gentiles. They are scattered among the Gentiles, which is why it's so important that God keeps saying, I know where they are. I know where I drove them. And I'll go get them and bring them back to their own land and reestablish them again. Keep reading. 
therefore prophesy and say to them, now that we know who they are, they're the whole house of Israel, and all the prophets speak with one voice, as I keep saying, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. How clear is that? Clear. Okay, so now, as we struggle with this, as we try to figure this one out, as we say, but, but church, Jim, church, as we try to figure this out, we have to ask ourselves, do we actually believe the word of God for what it says? Do we believe what God told Ezekiel that Ezekiel wrote down for us to read all these years later? Do we actually believe it or are we going through all these machinations in our head where we're saying, but it can't really mean that. I know it says that, and it says it really clearly, and it doesn't say it allegorically. It, it just says that, that God is going to raise them up out of their graves and bring them again to the land of Israel. And not only Ezekiel says that, but as we saw last week, prophet after prophet after prophet says that. Now the question is, but do we believe that? It's a hard one because that's not our circumstance. That's not the world we live in. The world we live in right now is Gentile dominance. It's all about the church. And, and then when we see things about Israel or promises for Israel or how they're going to be regathered or how they're going to be a future nation and they're going to have the son of David ruling over them, when we see that stuff here within the church, because remember, church, it's all about the America. It's all about, be, it's all about the church. When we see stuff like that, we have to find a way to explain it away all too often within the church. And so we develop theories and ideas and systems and hermeneutics and ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible so that we can say, but this doesn't mean what it says. But you know, I have argued over and over again that if the Bible doesn't mean what it says, then we have no idea what it means. If God had meant to say something else, he wouldn't have used these words. He'd have said something else. But these are the words he used because these were the words that best convey what he was trying to tell us. And what he's trying to tell us is, Behold, I will open the graves of Israel, the house of Israel. I will cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. Just like is promised over and over again. And then, why would God do this? Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and done it, declares the Lord. This is all based on the veracity of God's own nature, character, and promises. So, he's going to take them back to the land. Why is he going to take them back to the land? Why is there this guarantee that he's going to take them back to the land? Because he said he would. That's the, that's the Abrahamic covenant. An unconditional covenant made with Abraham and his descendants that he would give them this land in perpetuity. 
Now, once we read the Abrahamic covenant, this is another one of those moments where we got to say, okay, now does God mean those exact people, those particular people? He's actually going to bring them to that land, to that sliver of land over there off the Mediterranean. Does it really mean that? Is that what this is about? Or does it really mean that in some spiritual way, Abraham's going to become the heir of the world and the promised land becomes heaven? And is that what it means? Well, if you just read what it says and don't impose systems or extra ideas onto it, what you come away with is God's continual promises to be faithful to the very people who he unconditionally promised he would be faithful to. That's why in the book of Hosea it's so important to read in the place where they're called, not my people, I will call them my people. Here God keeps calling them my people. When? When he brings them back. When he brings them to their land. Yes, ma'am. Ask your question so I can get a drink. Um, I know the ten tribes of Israel also have the two tribes of Judah. When the ten tribes of of Israel are brought together, does the two tribes of Judah become with them as well? Do they all have the same promise? Stick around. We're not done reading. Yeah, there's an answer right in this chapter that really nails it. Everything I'm saying here. You might be thinking at this moment, I don't know, Jim. Hang with me. We're going to keep reading, and you're going to go, oh, it it actually really says that. Starting at verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick right on it for Judah and the sons of Israel, his companions. That's the southern tribe. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. That's the northern tribe. Then join those two sticks, join them for yourself one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Then you say to them this. Oh, God's going to interpret it. So now God's creating a visual aid. And he says, here's what you're going to do, Ezekiel. You're going to get two sticks. On one of them, you're going to write northern tribe. The other one, you're going to write southern tribe. And you're going to walk around with both those sticks in your hand together. And then people are going to say to you, say, Zeke, what's the deal with the sticks? (laughs) And you're going to answer them. And this is what you're going to say to them. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, the northern tribes, which is in the hand of Ephraim, Mount Ephraim, northern tribes, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, that's all ten tribes, and I will put them with the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. Did that answer your question? That was it right there. So what did God just declare again? He said, I'm going to make all 12 tribes one. So what is that? That's all Israel. That's all 12 tribes. That's the whole of Israel. It's all 12 tribes. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel. This is verse 21. I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them back into their own land. Does that sound just like everything I read last week? It just keeps getting said over and over and over again. 
and I'll bring them back into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be king over them all. And they will no longer be two nations. And they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Is that vague? No. Is there any way to deny those words? Okay, now my point in going back and reading this, and I'm not quite done reading this chapter because it just gets better. The whole point in reading this is Paul knows all this. How often have we seen Paul citing Old Testament passages in order to undergird his theology? He's basing all of his teaching, all his doctrine, all his theology on what the scripture says. So he knows all of this stuff. We know he knows this stuff because he just quoted Ezekiel. Verse 24, my servant David. What? Why David? This is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is an unconditional covenant that God made with David that he was going to make a house, a dynasty for him. And that ultimately his progeny, his son was going to sit on the throne of Israel ruling the 12 tribes. That's the Davidic covenant. So Ezekiel goes on, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them and they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. The Abrahamic covenant was passed on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, same land, same promise. You can go look at it in the book of Genesis as it moves from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Here God says they're going to live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which is the land that he promised to Abraham, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. It's awfully, awfully clear. It's awfully, awfully precise. And you got to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to get around that. Okay, now I said all that in order to say that's the basis of what we're reading here in Romans 11. Paul knows all that history, all that background, all these prophecies that we've been reading for the last couple of weeks. Paul knows all that, and that's why he can just say these things almost like shorthand, and they're going to understand what it means. When Paul says that there were some branches that were cut off, his audience knows immediately, yeah, that's right, that's what happened to northern, the northern tribes, the house of Israel. They're cut off. So cut off that they even said in Ezekiel, we're cut off. They've been cut off from the temple. They've been cut off from 
the worship. They've been cut off from their land. They've been sent away. That being the case, Paul says, if the first piece of dough, the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. What did we just read from Ezekiel? God is the God who sanctifies, makes holy Israel. And if the root is holy, then the branches are holy too. They're separated to God for his own personal use. The argument usually from folks at this point is they'll say, Israel, the northern tribes who have been gone since the Assyrian captivity, who have disappeared into the Gentile nations, that Israel? Are you actually saying, Jim, that that Israel is going to be regathered by God and brought back into their own land, the whole of the land, not just the little bit of land that they've occupied so far, but the whole of the land all the way out to the rivers that God promised Abraham in the first place. They're all going to be raised up from their graves. It's going to be like a resurrection from the dead, says Paul, and then they're going to be brought back to their own land. This is the place where people usually go, that can't happen. And you say, why? Why can't that happen? It's been so long. It's been 3,000 years. God still knows who they are and where they are. Okay, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, God wrote down certain names before the foundation of the world. He wrote down names in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, Let's presuppose for just a moment, and this could be a presupposition on my part, but let's suppose for just a moment that Kenneth's name is in that book, okay? Sorry. Okay, Kenneth comes to the planet. Kenneth runs around. Kenneth's all over the place. Kenneth is sinning like mad. Am I making up anything? Okay, good. Kenneth is doing his life, and he's out there among the Gentiles, and he's doing everything he can to be a lost soul. Did God find him? Yes. Why did God find him? Because his name was in the book. God had already intended before forever to get to Kenneth. We just read a whole bunch of passages that say God intends to get to Israel. Does time make a difference? No. Does distance make a difference? No. Does the fact that they've been interspersed among the Gentiles and they're out there sinning like crazy, does that make a difference? Is God's arm too short that he cannot save? That's Isaiah's question. God can do whatever God wants to do. We believe, at least I believe, I hope you believe in an absolutely sovereign God. If you believe in an absolutely sovereign God, is there anything God can't do? Well, then he told you what he's going to do. He's already said what he plans to do. And he said it over and over and over and over again. All Paul is saying is, that's what God's going to do. Let's follow Paul's logic now in Romans 11. If some of the branches were broken off, you, you Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, then don't you Gentiles become arrogant toward the natural branches? Because if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root. It's the root that supports you. Okay, what's that root? 
What's that root? Through the years, I have heard all kinds of interpretations of the root. Some people have said the root is the church. Yeah, that was the right face to make. Yeah, because since it's Israel's root, it's probably not the church. I've heard people say the root is Christ. But then you have to explain the theology that says there were people in Christ, natural branches planted in Christ, who got cut off from Christ. Well, not if we believe in perseverance of the saints. Not if we believe that when Jesus said, everyone who comes to me, I'll never cast them out. So then it can't be that. What is the root of Israel? Why does Israel exist and why is God being faithful to them to this day? What is the very root and core of Israel? Abraham. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Paul, in the book of Galatians, takes the time to explain that we Gentiles can now be considered the offspring of Abraham because Abraham had faith, it was exchanged for righteousness, and he uses that as the basis of his theology to say that we then, who have faith in Christ, also are going to get righteousness in exchange for that faith, and that makes Abraham our father too. So we've been grafted into Abraham. That is consistent with everything that Paul writes it's the only reason I'm mentioning Galatians is to show that Paul's thinking is always Abraham as the root. Now, if the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promises are the root for why Israel exists, it makes perfect sense then that the natural olive branches got cut off from that promise. In what way? They're not in the land. That was a key essential part of the Abrahamic covenant. And then we could say rightly that the root supports Israel and the root supports us. Because we are believing that we are saved by salvation, by grace, through faith, which began at Abraham. So the Abrahamic unconditional promise is the support of both us in the church and Israel as a nation. That's the only explanation that makes any sense. So then the root supports you. Verse 19, you will say then, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Do you hear the arrogance in that statement? Like I'm the important one. The reason that those branches got taken away is so I could come in. The reason that God has turned his back on Israel is to bring in the church. This is about me. This is the kind of arrogance, the kind of bragging that Paul is saying, don't do. Am I alone up here when I say that I've heard that a lot? <laughs> and Paul says, don't do that. Because you're supported by the root, which is the Abrahamic covenant, which is a promise made to Israel. It belongs to Israel. So don't be bragging. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, quite right. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by your faith, so don't be conceited. But instead, fear. That word is not just fear like slavish fear, like, oh, I'm afraid all the time. It's reverence. 
Be reverent of God and God's plan and what God is doing. And don't become all high and mighty and thinking you're the one who figured out some special theological system whereby you can cut off Israel completely. Don't be thinking like that. Quite right. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. So do not be conceited, but be reverent. For if God did not spare the natural branches, notice that, the ones who belong to the Abrahamic covenant, the ones who have the promises, the ones who have the Old Testament and the prophecies, the ones who have all that are the natural branches. And if he would not spare them because of their sin, he's not going to spare you because of your sin. See Paul's thinking? He's saying God can be very severe. Look at verse 22. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if, here's the condition, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So just like we've been seeing all the way through chapters 9, 10, and 11, the reason that Israel was scattered and dispersed was for their lack of faith. They had a zeal. They had a heat for God, Paul says, but not with knowledge. They didn't have faith. They just had their works. So he's returned to that same idea and said, yes, God cut them off because of their lack of faith. But what did we see in Ezekiel 37? God said he's going to put his spirit in them So that they will follow after his commands and his ordinances. They are going to come to faith. They are going to be a nation born in a day. They are going to walk as the people of God. He's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. Paul, knowing all that, can say they've been cut off. And the severity of God is he'll cut you off too if you don't continue in faith. That's how important this faith thing is. If you start thinking it's about you, your works, how good you are, what you've accomplished, what your religion is. If you start thinking that, he can cut you off too. It's all about faith. Faith in Christ. Christ is the center of it all. Christianity, the Bible indeed, is Christocentric. It's all about what do you think of Christ. Christ placed himself at the center of the religious universe and said, what you do with me determines your eternity. And so Paul here is saying, stay in faith. Stay in God's kindness and grace. And if you continue in that, then you're going to be fine. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off. But then look at verse 23. Here's the shocker. They also, the cut off wild olive branches, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And what do all the prophets say? With one voice across the board, what do they say about Israel? They say God's going to give them a new spirit. They're going to come to faith. Paul knows that. So he says, look, when that happens, when they come to faith, he's going to graft them right back in. And it's going to be really easy to graft them back in. It's not going to be anywhere near as difficult as grafting Tom in. It's going to be really easy to graft them in because it's their tree. It's their root. These are their promises. You, you're the wild one. You're the one that took grace to bring in. But they, they own all that. That belongs to them. 
They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. For if you were cut off from that which is by nature a wild olive tree, and if you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul's theology is they will be grafted back in. They haven't fallen completely. They may have stumbled. But the promise of Ezekiel is they're dry, they're cut off, they're scattered. And yet God is going to find them, raise them up out of their graves, restore them, put his spirit in them and bring them back to the land he promised them. In other words, the God I believe in is the God who does everything he says he does. Are you good with that God? Are you good with the God who can do whatever he wants to do? And just because our measly little simple minds struggle with it, doesn't mean it's not going to happen. What does Isaiah say? God speaking says, you're not like me. I'm not like you. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher than you are my thoughts and my ways. You've got to remember that about God, that God can do whatever he wants to do, and he's just told you what he's going to do. And Paul's theology in the New Testament after the cross is God's still going to do what he said he's going to do. Here's the way he puts it. I'm nearly done. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery. We've talked about that word a few times. Paul uses that word, mysterion. And what it means is a previously unrevealed truth. Something that exists, something that is true, something that God just simply hadn't explained yet. It was there in the Old Testament. It hadn't come to its its fruition yet. And that was more difficult to say than it probably should have been. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery Unless you become wise in your own estimation. How many times now has he said, don't be conceited. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't get together with other church councils and create theologies where you say, God's done with Israel. Instead, I'm going to tell you about this mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until. See that word until? That means there's something coming, some event in time. And when that event in time has occurred, then God's going to do the rest of what he said he's going to do. There is a hardening on Israel until, which implies it's going to be lifted. We've already read out of Ezekiel. We've read out of so many passages last week that we know what God is planning to do, that he's planning to restore them. He's planning to bring them up out of their graves. He's planning to put his spirit in them. He's planning to take them back to their land. He's planning to give them Christ himself, David's greater son, as their king. He's planning that they're going to be one nation, all 12 tribes. He's planning that that's all going to happen. But it was all a mystery. So don't become arrogant. Don't become conceited. Don't become full of yourself. Don't become wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, what, what's that number? What's the fullness of Gentiles look like? How many is that? We don't know. 
This is another example of God not feeling any compunction to tell us everything. God knows. God has a definite number in his head. So definite, he wrote names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. He knows exactly how many people he's going after. He knows who he's going to get and who he's going to bring. He knows all that. Paul just refers to it as the fullness of you and me. The fullness of all of us. And once he has got the fullness of all of us, which by the way, I think is another one of Paul's inspirations for being as evangelistic as he was. He's out there trying to make up the number. He's out there trying to bring everybody to Christ he can bring to Christ. And that is a good inspiration for why we do what we do. Why do we keep telling people about Christ? Because we love people and we want to see people come to their Savior. We don't want to see people burning forever. We don't want to see anybody fall under the judgment of God. But we also want to see that full number. We want to see the wholeness of the number that God has intended since before the foundation of the world. And every day, every minute, I think, now? No, apparently not now. God graciously, long-sufferingly has waited 2,000 years. I don't know how many more he's going to wait, but he's making up that number. And when he has made up that number, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Do you get it now? What's all Israel? Is it everybody who ever lived? Can't be. Jesus himself, talking to the Pharisees, said that sin of blasphemy is not going to be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. So it can't be every single Israelite who ever lived. We can think of many examples from the Old and New Testament of people who are not forgiven and God tells us they're not. So it can't be every individual. So then what constitutes all Israel? All All 12 tribes. That was your question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess I did ask that. A couple of weeks ago, you said, is that everybody? Is that every Israelite? And I said, no, hang on. We'll get there. It's on tape. I got it on tape. I'll prove it to you. (laughs) Now, listen to these words, and we're done. Psalm 14, 7, Paul goes back and quotes, The deliverer will come from Zion, that's Jerusalem, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Israel. Israel, all 12 tribes. Paul's very specific with his language here. And this is my promise, my covenant with them when I take away their sins. People argue repeatedly that the reason God has cast off Israel never to return again is because of their sins, because of their rebellion, because of their chasing foreign gods and their intermarrying and they're not keeping the law. So they've sinned and their sin was so bad that God is done with them. That's usually the argument, except that Paul right here quotes again from the Old Testament, again right from the pen of David. He quotes that there is a deliverer coming from Zion, from Jerusalem. That's obviously Christ. And that he is going to take away their sin. And you better be really, really happy that that's the way God works. Because if he came and just found you in your depravity and your sin, 
There's no way he would have saved you. He had to make some kind of plan to do away with your sin. And he did that through Christ, which is why he can therefore say that you are sanctified, that you are holy, that you are separated to him, and that you are already in his mind justified and glorified. Because he has, through Christ, already accomplished everything necessary to take away your sin. But that same Christ is the deliverer who comes from Zion who's going to take away Israel's sin. Does it say that? Yes. Does it say that after the cross? Is it part of Paul's theology? Well, then it has to be part of our theology. Yes. Got it? Got it. I don't care if you can't figure it out. I don't care if you can't conceive of it. I don't care if you numerically can't handle the math. It's just a fact God said it. We believe the word of God.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.